Welcome to Thursday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com, the mobile app and most podcast platforms. I'm Lance Meadow. He's Paul Dettino with you for the next 60 minutes. Thanks so much for tuning in as we'll be discussing various topics connected to the New York Giants. Later on in the program, we'll recap Wednesday's player video conference calls with the media involving Dalvin Tomlinson, Daniel Jones, and Saquon Barkley. But right off the top, we'll start with the Giants draft class, specifically the offensive linemen. And to weigh in on those three players and several other topics, we're now joined by a man who played five seasons in the NFL from 1995 to 1999 as an offensive lineman for the Packers and Chargers, helped Green Bay appear in back-to-back Super Bowls, winning one of them following the 1996 season over the Patriots. He now serves as a college football analyst for CBS Sports, and that is none other than Aaron Taylor. Aaron, you got Lance Meadow and Paul Dettino here on Giants.com, Big Blue Kickoff Live. Greatly appreciate the time today. I hope you and yours are safe and healthy. How's everything on your end? And I appreciate the invite, boys. And you left the, the biggest part of my bio off of there, which is that I was a high school teammate of none other than Amani Toomer. Wow. <laughs> that is a significant mention that I should have had right off the top. Well, I'm glad that you threw that out, Aaron. <laughs> yeah, but, but Aaron, I don't think you taught him the toe tap along the sideline. That, that, that involved too much agility. No, way too much agility, especially for an old, fat, hairy-backed offensive lineman like myself. Yeah, Amani was uh, a little bit more gifted than the rest of us, uh, particularly in the athletic click category. But a good dude, had a tremendous career there in New York, and uh, held a teammate. Absolutely, and we know Amani very well. He's part of our Giants broadcast team, so it just goes to show you it is an extremely small world when it comes to the game of football. Well, you brought up the trenches, Aaron, and that's a big reason why we wanted you on the program. Let's start there. From a big-picture perspective, you've studied all types of offensive linemen. We'll get into the award that you helped found as well shortly. Seven offensive linemen were taken in the first round in this year's draft. What is your biggest takeaway when you see the volume of offensive linemen that were invested in within the first round? Well, offensive linemen are still at a premium, and it's pretty interesting, boys, because the last time I checked, football is still a game of blocking and tackling. So you have to have big dudes up front that can get the job done, just like you can have guys come off the edge on third down to get home to the quarterback when the defense needs to get off the field. I think part of the reason we're starting to see the NFL adopt some of these college-based offensive systems for the first time isn't just due to the quarterbacks they're inheriting. It's also due to the lack of quality offensive linemen that are coming out from the collegiate ranks. So we saw seven offensive linemen come out this uh, in the first round in this year's draft, but this wasn't the quality of draft that we've seen. And there were some reaches, in my opinion, from that position. The offensive line is the most technical position in football. And it, it, it has the smallest room for error. It's most technically sound. It literally is a game of inches. If you're going against the Aaron Donalds of the world or the Lawrence Taylors of the world back in the day and you overset and you're a little extended and you miss with your left-hand punch, it's a wrap. It's a nightmare. It's a sack. It's a pressure. It's a tackle for loss. So from that standpoint, it's still a critically important position. We saw seven guys go, and the Giants got a good one. I was a little bit surprised with them taking Andrew Thomas, but it just goes to show you that the blue-collar nature of that franchise and what the Giants have been, what they want to get back to, is a ground-and-pound physical offensive football team that sets the tone for the entire team. Well, two of the offensive linemen the Giants took this year, Andrew Thomas out of Georgia and Shane Lemieux out of Oregon, were guys you studied a lot over the last two years because they got into the final round of the Joe Moore Award, of which you are a co-founder because of your appreciation for offensive line. And and I think the first thing that, that I want our fans to understand, Aaron, is what this award is about, uh, given to the most outstanding offensive line unit in college football for the past five years, because it is that appreciation and, and what you have done with this award that truly gives you a very detailed perspective on some of the Giants guys that we're going to talk about in a couple of minutes. Yeah, thank you about that. Joe Moore was my offensive line coach in college. He created an award in his honor, and he was about two things, toughness and teamwork. And that's the foundation of the sport of football, but it's also also the foundation of what this country was built upon. So we wanted a way to kind of memorialize him on the mantle of college football. But more than that, 
to uphold the principles that he believed in. So we created an award in his honor, and it's the only group or unit award in college football. All other awards, and there's 20 plus of them, go to an individual, which we feel is ironic because football is a consummate team sport, and the O-line is the consummate team position within that sport. So we felt it was a fitting way to not only honor a man, but the right sort of principles. So what we do on a weekly basis throughout the college football season is we start watching all 130 offensive line units. It's an inordinate amount of work, but these are guys that are in the business, that played or coached the position, that are on TV, talking heads in college football, and we simply watch tape and start sending clips and, and links to games to each other to say, hey, take a look at a Shane Lemieux in this offensive line, their left tackle, Panay Sewell that they have, who's the next Anthony Munoz coming out of Oregon, or an Andrew Thomas, who was coached by Sam Pittman, who's now the head coach of Arkansas, but probably a top five O-line coach within college football. And his units are perennially finalists or semifinalists for the Joe Moore Award in our short history of five years. So all we do is focus on that position that's really the lifeblood of the sport, fellas. And it's interesting, when you think about the sport of football, Everything around the offensive line has changed. Where they lined up, what they do, there's motions, there's trades, there's shifts. But what has stayed constant since the game was invented was five guys lining up shoulder to shoulder across the line of scrimmage. They line up in the same spot today like they did 200 plus years ago. And that's why it's so important to honor what those guys in the trenches do. But you know, Aaron, what I love about it is, as you just said, it's about your film work. And I noticed the criteria on the uh, website for the Joe Moore Award. Toughness, effort, teamwork, consistency, technique, and finishing. You guys are doing the real homework as a real scout would do, as a general manager would do, as a pro personnel director would do. You're not just looking up some stats from some analytics service and, and just taking something out of thin air. You guys are getting in down and dirty like every offensive lineman should. It's the only way to evaluate the position. You can't cheat it. There's no shortcuts. And if that sucks for us, because it's a ton of work, man. <laughs> we, we have day jobs. We have to watch the regular things. And most of us call games. But it's a labor of love. And it's what we did. And we've created, really, a virtual O-line room, man. But between us now, and, and we're all seeing with Zoom kind of what that has to be. But we've been doing that for the last five years. And it's the only way to truly evaluate it. And those criteria aren't things we came up with. I pulled over 2,000 thousand years of playing and coaching experience within the O-line community and asked them, give me the top three attributes from the best offensive line you ever coached. There were probably 50 different words that ended up, you can imagine one of those word clouds, but when we distilled it, it came down to toughness. It came down to effort. It came down to teamwork and guys working together. It came down to consistency. It came down to technique and being fundamentally sound. And then, of course, the, the most important fundamental that we look for a lot of times is finishing we probably overweight that nasty chip on the shoulder that offensive linemen bring to the table and Andrew Thomas has that in spades now Aaron you mentioned the award goes back to 2015 Alabama won it that year LSU just won it this past season and you laid out the criteria and all the work that you and your colleagues on the committee have to go through I'm curious how intense do those discussions get and how close has it been over the last few years in terms of your evaluation? This year was the closest we've ever had, and it honestly came down to two votes, and it was between LSU and Oregon. Oregon easily could have won this award, and they deserve to win this award. Unfortunately, only one team can win, and it was LSU as the voters saw fit, and LSU deserve to win the award. It, it's from our position. I've never voted. I can't vote. We have a committee. Those guys vote, and then we extend it and open it up to some select media members, but all 130 FBSO line coaches, people that played and coached the position that know what they're looking at. It's only credible people that vote, and it came down to two votes. And I've always likened it to this, fellas. I said, hey, look, how in the world are you going to ask a fat kid to pick his favorite flavor of ice cream? <laughs> and that's really what it came down to this year was the pistachio green of, of uh, Oregon or the, the purple, I don't even know what that would be called, what type of ice cream that would be, but the, the purple and gold of LSU. Both of them had tremendous years but that's the process that we use to break this down. Well, I guess we should probably start with Oregon then. Even though Shane Lemieux was a fifth-round pick by the Giants and not their first-round pick, let's just start with Oregon since they were at the tip of your tongue here. And what did you see from Shane Lemieux in terms of his contributions to that Ducks line and what he can bring to the Giants? 
Yeah, first of all, Alex Nurball, their offensive line coach and, and co-offensive line coach, Mario Cristobal, who's become a friend over the years, do an amazing job with that group. And the thing that you notice first is how well they come off the football. And Shane Lemieux popped off the tape right away because he's a big, physical, blue-collar guard. If you want to create running lanes for a Saquon Barkley and hold the point of attack in some of the great defensive tackles that you see there in the NFC East, you're going to want somebody like Shane Lemieux to be able to come to the table and be a road grader, to be a people mover. Now, he is limited in terms of his athleticism, but with guys like Will Hernandez adding Shane Lemieux, who's probably going to step in and be an immediate backup, become an eventual starter at some point, he's the type of beef and brawn that you're going to want to take on the road when you only bring seven guys to get the job done. So he was a fifth-round pick. That's probably where he belonged to be. But I think history is going to show that you're going to get a better value in taking Shane Lemieux in the fifth round than you might have had you not taken him at all. I, I really like the kid. He is limited in what he does. But, again, overweighting and appreciation for tough physical running games, and that's what the Giants need. I thought it was a good pick at that spot. We're talking with Aaron Taylor, former NFL offensive lineman, won a Super Bowl with the Packers, now a college football analyst for CBS Sports. And Aaron, when Shane Lemieux arrived on the scene with the Giants, there's been some chatter that they could potentially move him to center because there still is certainly a question mark in terms of who's going to be the starting center this season. How much potential from your film study, he started only at left guard throughout his Oregon career, but how much potential do you see in him perhaps at the center spot moving forward? Yeah, I, I, I'm not surprised to hear that, and that's probably going to be his easiest entry onto the field because he certainly can't play tackle, and the guard spots seem to be locked up for the time being. I know Hernandez had the injury, so that's you know something to keep an eye on moving forward and those sort of things, but... Yeah, i tell you this, I didn't take any snaps at center at Notre Dame or in my four years in Green Bay before being uh, a free agent coming to San Diego. And we had some injuries in camp, and I was forced to snap. And let me tell you what, boys, there is a whole lot of stuff to worry about when it's a snap count, putting it in shotgun, making sure the ball needs to be where it's going to be, and make your block. You actually step before you snap the football to get the timing right. And there's some mechanical things that were really challenging for me personally. People do it all the time and convert it, but to expect him to be able to do that on the NFL level after never having done it, I think that would be a two- or three-year project at best. He certainly got the capability from an athletic standpoint, getting up to the second level um, and those sort of things. But that's going to be a tough transition for anybody moving just one spot inside. But one of the things he did tell us, Aaron, fortunately for the Giants, is that even though he didn't play any center at all when he was at Oregon, he did practice it apparently all throughout the course of this past season. So he thinks that he may be a little bit further along on terms of that curve than maybe somebody would be if they just came out fresh and were trying it for the first time. Does that give him a, a better chance or a more realistic chance of trying to compete at center this fall if they want him to? Yeah, you know what? That's a great point. I didn't know that. I hadn't read it and certainly didn't see it uh, watching tape. So that does give them a tremendous advantage. The thing that was hard for me and what's hard for a lot of people, and I'm you know, basically a, the, the average guy making the, the shift from position to position, uh, it is the transition of the step and the snap and pass protection and being able to make the calls and setting the mic and the protection. There's some extra things that have to be processed prior to, let alone the mechanics of either having a center or quarterback underneath you riding your, your hand um, or snapping the football accurately, consistently from the shotgun position. So the fact that he practiced that as an emergency backup is going to be a hell of a benefit for him and make that transition quite a bit easier. Aaron, you interestingly were referencing during the course of your career because of injuries with the Chargers that you were really thrown quickly into the mix at center. And as you well know, because of the new CBA, the amount of time in the offseason, specifically this season because of the circumstances of the country, extremely limited to develop offensive linemen. So from studying college football so closely, how important is it that perhaps college offensive linemen really focus on versatility and try to expose themselves to getting reps at various spots, knowing they're probably going to be thrown into a different position, perhaps, once they get to the NFL level. Well, it's important for all 
positions, but none greater than the offensive line. It's the old axiom, the more you can do, the harder it is for them to let you go. So if you have that versatility to play, which Andrew Thomas does, he can play right or left tackle. That's huge because of the limited roster spots and who you can bring on the road particularly. The more you can do, the better off you are for your team because when one domino falls, it's not this cascading effect. So it's critical to be able to be somewhat diverse and what you're able to do. But the problem that the NFL is seeing, and it's the same thing we see in college, is the limited practice time. I started as a true sophomore at Notre Dame. There is zero chance I could have played had I not had the spring ball after my freshman season. Well, that's what we're going to see this year because of COVID-19. There's been no spring training. There's been no OTAs for these NFL guys. That jump from the collegiate level to the pro level is probably hardest on quarterbacks and offensive linemen. I gave up more pressures in in many camps, OTAs in Green Bay, than I did for three years uh, when I was with Notre Dame. It's just the speed of the creature that you see takes some adjusting to get to. Now you figure it out pretty quickly, but it takes maybe a season and a half once the, the real games start to be able to make that adjustment. So the lack of time of preparation impacts both quarterbacks and offensive linemen more so than any other position. And it's what I alluded to at the top of the show. It's that limited practice time that's really seeing the decline in overall offensive line play that's now affecting the NFL. It will be interesting to see if that limited practice time inhibits Andrew Thomas from competing for a starting job right away out of the box. I mean, he's the fourth overall pick in the draft. The Giants have said it's going to be the veterans uh, who are going to be in front of him, Fleming and Solder and Thomas, three of them who will compete for two spots. Aaron, I don't know how realistic it is in your mind that he can win one of those spots in week one, but because Georgia was a finalist uh, the previous year, I know you've gotten a a lot of good tape on him. What do you see in Andrew Thomas? Well, I tell you what, I, I was surprised. I had Jedrick Wills from Alabama as my highest rated offensive lineman with the highest ceiling, but I'll say this. Andrew Thomas was the safest pick. He has the highest floor. And given the pass protection issues that the Giants had at tackle last year, 96, I think, more so than any other tackle pair in the country, if I'm Andrew Thomas, I'm feeling pretty good about my chances to make uh, to make the team and, and earn one of those starting spots. Now, I know Rimmers has moved on, and you mentioned that there's three guys for two spots. But what Thomas brings to the table is a multi-year starter, so he's experienced. 41 straight games, so he's uh, durable. And in the NFL, it's the ability that matters most is availability or durability, and he certainly got that. His arms are 36-plus inches long. He's a creature, so he can get those hands on you. And what I love about him is his hand speed. He has the pass pro punching power of a boxer, and he brings a tough tenacity and grittiness to the table that I think are going to really allow him to make that transition immediately when he gets on the team. He's a day-one starter to me that's a tough, well-coached, fundamentally sound, NFL-ready swing tackle. And I think at the end of the day, all the Giants fans that were kind of poo-pooing this pick are going to be very happy that they took him at the four spots. One of the things that the Giants even mentioned, and it's interesting you brought up Jedrick Wills in terms of somebody who you thought had a higher ceiling. They mentioned Thomas had experience starting at both the right and the left tackle spot, whereas Wills, as you know, was a right side tackle because of two is blind side, was a different side than most quarterback because he's a lefty. When you say you thought Wills had a higher ceiling, if you could expand on that, Aaron, why do you say that more so than what Andrew Thomas perhaps can bring to the table? Just what you see in his athleticism, what you see in his tenacity, what you see what he does at the point of attack and the way that he looks to dominate his opponents, that nasty chip. Him and Thomas share that, but he doesn't necessarily have the length that you want, and I think that's why some teams are shying away from him. But what I look at, the way the guys run off the football, and I know the Giants wanted to do that, and when you watched Wills do what he did, it was impressive. A lot of linemen, especially young ones, will stop their feet on contact. They get to the target and stop, and then it becomes a stalemate. What you saw Wills consistently do was to accelerate on contact, and his lower body power was impressive. He was extremely violent with his hands and pass pro, and he, was a, he wasn't afraid to throw them. And he had tremendous contact balance and great feet so that when he got knocked off balance at times, he wouldn't get knocked down. He was never on the ground, and he would find a way to get back in front of the defender and make the block. 
scouting is all about projection and it's all about traits. And when I looked at the traits of Wills, it wasn't by a big margin, but I did have him higher rated higher than Thomas, who at times can get overextended um, and would be on the ground at times. And those are probably the biggest differences that I saw. These are two very high quality tackles, but I think Wills is going to be an all pro at some point in the league within the next three to four years. You did mention Sam Pittman earlier during our conversation, Aaron, and I think it's interesting because we had Coach Pittman on our program about a week ago. And when I asked him if there was one more thing that you could teach Thomas, if you were around him for another year, what would that be as he got to the Giants? And he said, well, there were times when, you know, his hands were a little bit too low and, you know, we didn't teach the quick punch uh, that, that they'll probably want him to use in the NFL. I'd like to ask you, how much sense does that make to you, and how hard is it going to be for him to learn this quick punch that Coach Pittman is talking about that, that Thomas is going to have to figure out? Well, it, it's, it's a, what's the best way to describe it? Like a boxer, right? You've got your haymakers and you've got your quick jabs. Having a quick punch is like a quick jab. It allows you to create separation between yourself and the defender. Run blocking is all about aggression. It's being aggressive. You're coming off, you're trying to create space at the point of contact. Pass protection is passive aggressive. You have to give ground slowly and under control. What you see Thomas did, even though he had heavy hands and when he made contact it was violent, was the slower catch technique. When you have the lower body strength, you can kind of big back and over muscle defenders, even in the SEC, which we saw Thomas do consistently. That's not going to work necessarily down in and down out on the uh, on the next level in the NFL. When you got guys like Demarcus Lawrence and Brandon Graham to deal with, I saw that you guys open on Monday night against the Steelers against a TJ Watt and going to Chicago on the road against a Khalil Mack potentially with crowd noise and those sort of things if they even allow fans back in the stands to do that. But the way the game has changed over the last 10 years, more so than any uh, other period I've seen, is the, the pass pro technique of the offensive lineman. You can't just sit back and punch these guys. You have to set them up, the defenders, like they set us up for those big plays on third and fourth down late in ball games. So flashing your hands to give them something to see that they're going to try to hit and bringing them back. You have to be able to jump set them to be able to take away their timing, to disrupt their plan with your plan, and that requires versatility. So the difference between a catch and grab and a slow uh, a slow technique where you take yourself and the defender slowly back to the quarterback is a safer technique, but it's one that can get you beat if that's your only tool in your toolbox toolbox on the next level. We're talking with Aaron Taylor here on Big Blue Kickoff Live, former NFL offensive lineman who won a Super Bowl with the Packers, now an analyst for CBS Sports. Aaron, they also took another tackle who has experience on the right and the left side, the Giants in the third round, Matt Parrott out of UConn. He's looked at as a developmental player, perhaps unlike Thomas. What have you seen out of Matt Parrott on film over the last few years out of UConn? You know, it's interesting. You throw the film on, the first thing you notice is his length, how long and athletic he is. The kid, 6'7", has 36-and-a-half-inch arms, and that means he can tie his shoes without even bending over. And that <laughs> comes into play as pass protection, what we were just talking about. There's a direct relationship between length of arm and length of the career in the NFL. It doesn't mean if you have long arms, you're going to be great. But if you're two offensive linemen that have the exact same talent level, the one with longer arms is going to have a longer, better career than the guy who's shorter. So that's the thing that you notice about him. He was a four-year starter. Again, that outstanding length and athleticism, but he's a developmental guy. He's a projection pick. He's a guy that you take because you love the traits. The concerning thing, and that's why I think he was a little bit of a reach in round three and why I think alludes to the fact that this was maybe not the deepest offensive line class that we've seen is the level of competition that he saw in the American conference. He was high at times. He was leaning on guys. He was really athletic and could recover well, but the technique that he used on a consistent basis isn't going to be what's required to allow you to be successful in the NFL. So he's going to have to refine that. That's why as a developmental guy, you take him, you're drafting him because of the traits and you believe that in two to three years he can be a starter for you and have a nice seven eight nine ten year career once his athleticism kind of meets up with his talent level 
when we researched his background, Aaron, when he was drafted by the Giants, we heard a lot about he was a late starter in football, but that uh, he was really a tremendous basketball player. Great athleticism in the front court. And we've heard the Giants folks even talk about they think that is something that's very beneficial. You're talking about traits a moment ago that teams kind of, you know, get a little bit uh, tasty for. Is, is the basketball background and athleticism something that you think will do him well as, as an NFL player? No question. And it speaks to athleticism. And that's the thing that you see right off the tape. And, and they're not making too many six, seven dudes that are 300 plus pounds that can move fluidly. And, and Payert certainly has that ability to do that. What you don't like is that when you look at him on film and off the hoof, he's a lean 318 at 6'7". He's built a little bit more like a power forward than he is a big, imposing bookend as a tackle in the NFL. So he needs to develop that play strength and get a little bit better with his hands. I noticed his right hand a lot of times is a catch-and-grab hand. He's pretty good with his inside hand, so he can recover on spin moves, on hand chops, and any sort of twists or stunts where the defensive end is coming in first he stays square extremely well that was one thing that was impressive but that right hand and being high and leaning on guys is a good way to get your quarterback hurt and I think the Giants fans and organization really like what they have in Daniel Jones so those are going to be things he's going to have to figure out but again think of it as a lump of clay you really love the lump of clay that you have to work with with Payard but it's not a developed product just yet. Aaron, interestingly, he started off on the left side and then moved to the right. And normally we see the reverse, I guess, in terms of the progression of a tackle. You said it's clay, it's raw right now talent that they have to mold. Down the road, do you see him as somebody versatile enough to play both sides? Or do you see him more as just the right guy on the NFL level? Without question, he's got the athleticism to play left tackle. That's really the, the key differentiator. And it, it's not as much uh, of a difference now in today's game as it was just because defenses are getting smarter and putting their creatures over the right tackle to be in the face of the quarterback. And they may not get home because the quarterback can see them, but the threat of them can disrupt the play and the timing enough to be able to get themselves off a of third down. So it's quite a bit more balanced now where the pass rushers and pressure are coming for, but a key limiting factor and still a difference that you see, a right tackle needs to be a run-heavy, big physical body that can get the job done at the point of attack. A left tackle tends to be a little bit more athletic. It's easier for a guy to play right than it is left, but Payard has the athleticism to play both, and again, that's a bonus, especially with Thomas, who also has that versatility. That allows a staff to place the best guy in the best position to not only get your best five on the field, but to put them in their positions of strength so that the overall cohesiveness of the unit is elevated. Final one for me, Aaron. Had an offensive coordinator on the show the other day, and he said his biggest concern, if, if you were a coach going through this virtual learning that these teams have to use through this summer, would obviously the quarterback is one thing, and the Giants have Joe Judge, and a new head coach, new offensive coordinator, whole new scheme and system. But he said the other thing that would be of monumental concern would be the offensive line and getting the pass protections right. Would you share that same worry that that is going to be something that they're really going to have to do quick book work on and quick learning as soon as they get to the field? There's no doubt about that, and that's what we hit on it a couple times now on the show in terms of needing that practice time and making the adjustment for level to level or team to team is are those two positions. So you have a team with the Giants that have a need at the offensive line position. They draft a guy at the number four spot who's not going to be able to take the field. Not only is the physicality not there, and he can knock some rust off. I think that's going to be equalized because nobody's necessarily on the field. But I liken it to this. The pass protections that the coordinator was referencing are extremely intricate. There are if-thens for every possible scenario on every sort of protection. You have five-man protection, scat protection, which is just the five offensive linemen, six, seven, and eight-man protections that, that require different things. The identification, especially with the hybrid defenses we're seeing, you see it a lot in college. We've seen it in the NFL as of late where you have a hybrid safety linebacker that on first down is a safety, but on second down is a linebacker. On third down, you don't know what the hell he is, so you don't know how to account for him. So you have to communicate that to everybody and then instantly react. 
that was the the part of the game of football that most of us struggle with when we first get to the NFL. It's the protections and the cohesiveness, but it's also the communication and the technique at that position. So with a guy like Payer and a guy like Andrew Thomas that aren't going to have an opportunity to not only be out there and walk through stuff, but have to mentally process it in a new language. And it's like going from a PC to a Mac. Everything is the same. It's just called different and in a different place. So it takes you a while to relearn things. That learning curve is going to be extended quite a bit. And it's going to be really interesting to see league-wide how the offensive lines come together, particularly ones like the Giants that had a need at that position and drafted accordingly. Absolutely, especially the teams, to your point, implementing a lot of new faces. Aaron, before we let you go, this is somewhat related to what you just talked about. We get tons of questions from fans all the time, and a popular question is when an offensive lineman is struggling, that the philosophy would be if he is a left tackle, well, put him over on the right side because you'll be able to hide him. And Paul and I, as well as other co-hosts, constantly argue that there is no such thing on any level of football as hiding an offensive lineman, specifically on the NFL level because of the elite pass rushers that we see who you can easily line up on both sides and most teams have two great pass rushers. As somebody who played the position... How can you shed more light on the fact that it's not fair to say there is such a thing as hiding a guy by moving him from the left side to the right side? Do you guys have kids? Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) You ever played hide-and-seek with your little ones where they go and and all of a sudden you see their feet sticking out from the cover behind the curtains and they think they're hiding just because they cover their eyes? Sure. Of course. (laughs) That's about the level of hiding on the NFL football field that you're able to do. There is no hiding on that level. These guys on the other side of the football are paid to be able to assess strengths and weaknesses. You maximize your strengths, you attack weaknesses you minimize weaknesses if you're on the other side of that equation you can maybe put a guy in a position of strength but trying to protect him by moving him from one side to the other in most circumstances just doesn't bear weight i agree with you guys there ain't no hiding on the football field if a guy's getting old if a guy's got particular injuries that make it hard for him to react to certain things if he's in a conference or a division where it's over you know heavy-handed and overweighted in one direction or another there's a nominal difference in benefit that you can get but overwhelmingly defenses are smart enough on almost all levels of football where they're going to create that one-on-one situation they covet on third down and find a way to get to the quarterback well said indeed that's why we wanted an expert to throw in his two cents to solidify that point and sell it home he is Aaron Taylor who played five seasons from 1995 to 1999 in the NFL as an offensive lineman for the Packers and the Chargers helped Green Bay appear in back-to-back Super Bowls winning one of them following the 1996 season over the Patriots he is now a college football analyst for CBS Sports Aaron greatly appreciate the time and the insight hope you and yours continue to stay safe and healthy thanks so much for your time on today's program. Greatly appreciate it. Great stuff, Aaron. Thanks. Thanks, boys. Appreciate you. Thanks again to former NFL offensive lineman Aaron Taylor, who also serves as a college football analyst for CBS Sports for weighing in on a great deal of substance on the three offensive linemen that the Giants took in the draft, but also fascinating, Paul, to hear the process that he and his colleagues go through all season long to find the best offensive line unit in college football, which is the Joe Moore Award. And for the last five years, to hear him explain how they're cutting up film, they're sharing film with one another, and they're doing it all the way from week one of the season all the way through, it just goes to show you, you know, these are individuals that have daily jobs unrelated to college football, yet they're still grinding out the film work each and every day. If you don't have people that are dedicated like that, there's no point of even having an award because you need to put in the homework and the research, and it's clear that he and his colleagues absolutely do that. Well, we didn't even have time to go into the folks who were on his committee. And if you talk about some of these names, you'll understand why these guys are just so thirsty to dig into into the film. Randy Cross, uh, Jerry DiNardo, Mike Golick Jr., uh, Jeff Schwartz, uh, you know, former giant. There, there's a whole bunch 
there's a whole bunch of guys, football guys, lifers. Uh, Lance Zierlein, uh, NFL draft analyst from NFL.com, is one of those guys. Phil Steele, who's been doing the college football previews and, and ESPN stuff for years upon years upon years. Uh, there, as he said, there there's a tremendous amount of experience that goes into this committee that uh, that he heads up, and I and I applaud Aaron Taylor for two things. Not only did he did he take a tremendous amount of time in determining the criteria and putting together as many educated eyes as he could, but I love the fact that he's just not reading somebody's mathematical computations and then saying, okay, these guys must be the best based on some mathematical statistics that somebody threw together and, oh, the computer spit it out, these guys win. That's not the case. These guys are looking at the tape. They're doing the legwork, and they're looking for people to pass the eye test. Yep. The eye test, Lance, that's the best test of all. Well, the other thing that I think is notable, and I hope our listeners take it away from having heard the interview, the passion that he has for also studying film and the energy that he brings to the table when he talks and breaks down offensive linemen, you need to have that too in order to be a big believer in the eye test, Paul, because it's easy to go online and go on Google and find all of the analytics humanly possible. And I'm not saying that there's no value behind that. Don't get me wrong. But people that have played the position, such as Aaron Taylor, you also have to have the time and dedication to want to sit down, roll through the film, and go over it and over it and over it again so that you really get the gist of what these guys bring to the table. And he clearly has the passion for it, as well as all those other individuals that you listed. You brought up Lance Zierland. Remember, he actually writes up all of the draft profiles on NFL.com. If you go, and we rely heavily on that, the draft tracker that NFL.com puts together, it is magnificent. It's so organized. It's so detailed. He's the guy responsible for putting that all together. So, you know, if somebody like that is on the committee, you can only imagine what the rest of the individuals in that group are doing on a daily basis. Well, in closing the book on the topic, understand that Joe Moore sent 52 offensive linemen during his collegiate coaching career to the National Football League. And some of those names, including uh, the one Aaron Taylor, who we just talked to, Bill Freilich, Mark May, Russ Grimm, Jimbo Covert, do I really need to go any further? <laughs> now, those are some notable names and then some that have made quite the impact on the NFL level. There's no doubt about that. So thanks again to Aaron Taylor for providing some great insight on a variety of topics. All right, let's move on. And on Wednesday, a number of players spoke to the media. They had video conference calls to catch up on what is going on during the course of the virtual offseason program. Earlier in the week, we heard from Joe Judge. So we heard from Dalvin Tomlinson, we heard from Daniel Jones, and we heard from Saquon Barkley. Let's start with Dalvin Tomlinson. And remember, it's important to note, just to provide some perspective, Paul, and you know this, but it's a reminder for our audience how much the Giants roster has turned over in a very <laughs> short period of time. Tomlinson, to me, is the poster child. Okay, well, the only individual that is left that was here the last time Patrick Graham wore big blue and was on the coaching staff in 2017 as the D-line coach, Dalvin Tomlinson was here. You're going to be hard-pressed to find anybody else in that category. So it was interesting. One of the questions he was asked about was when Patrick Graham was here the last time, what were your impressions? What did you see out of him? And he said, I absolutely knew he was going to be a defensive coordinator at some point in his career because of the energy and the details that he brought up in that defensive line room. So that just goes to show you Tomlinson's the only connection to Graham. Graham's working with completely new faces compared to when he was here the first time around. And, you know, those traits were things that we also saw outside of the locker room when when we knew Coach Graham, uh, you know, from afar, not nearly as closely as the players did because they're in the pits with him all the time. But we always knew he had high energy. He had a very high football acumen. I mean, is it any wonder, you know, that he comes from the Belichick coaching tree? 
Not at all. <laughs> it's also no wonder, remember, he went to Yale too, so yes. that's not too shabby either. No, exactly. And so uh, I have absolutely no inhibitions at all about his ability to be creative, to understand what it is that he wants to do, and to make sure that he explains it to everybody so that they have an understanding of what he wants to do. I, I, just, I just think that it's a really good hire, and I know, I know that Joe Judge through his association with the Patriots, where he had Graham on on the same staff under Belichick, uh, he was very determined to make him their number one candidate as the defensive coordinator, and they went and got him. Speaking of connecting the dots, the other thing that I found very interesting from what Tomlinson said, it just goes to show you once again, football world, it's a small world. He had mentioned that when he was being recruited by Alabama, Joe Judge was actually one of the individuals that was recruiting him, which is remarkable again, Paul. It's amazing the more and more you hear these stories. And he joked that when Joe Judge was recruiting him when he was at Alabama, that Judge joked with Tomlinson, because clearly his figure has changed over time, Tomlinson, that he looked at him as a guy that could be on the kickoff return team and maybe even return a kickoff here or there. But times have certainly changed when you move the calendar X amount of years forward. Well, to Tomlinson's credit, as he chuckled and laughed and told the story, he did say, I don't think they're going to ask me to do that again (laughs) this year. But if they do, I'll be willing to go out there and help. (laughs) Yes, he will not shy away from that. And remember, Tomlinson, by the way, not to get completely off topic, but anybody who recalls his history, remember, this is a player, Paul, that could have went to Harvard. So Mm -hmm. the intellect behind Dalvin Tomlinson and what he brings to the table is through the roof and just as impressive as Patrick Graham's resume. So this is somebody that had multiple options but ultimately chose to go to Alabama, play for Nick Saban, and now the Giants are trying to reap the rewards for how well he was molded into an NFL player. And the other key point that he brought up, and you know, we've talked about this on multiple programs well with the virtual offseason program, a lot of changes on defense. You really wonder what this unit is going to be able to produce. So if there's any area of continuity and carryover on this defense, Paul, it's his position. It's on the defensive line because most of the guys are returning. And he was asked, do you look at that as an advantage? And While the scheme has changed, the one thing he brought up was, well, we're familiar with one another. We know the tendencies of one another. We know the strengths. So that feel, he feels, will help once they ultimately get back on the field. Well, Austin Johnson, the veteran free agent who the Giants signed from the Titans this past offseason, is the one addition to that room. Otherwise, everybody else has already been here before. Now, I will say this. Uh, Sean Spencer, the defensive line coach uh, via Penn State, also drew rave reviews from um, Delvin Tomlinson, who talked about his high energy level as well. It's interesting that Spencer, coming from Penn State, uh, guess what? He coached Austin Johnson when Johnson was at Penn State and had a sensational season as a sophomore. So Johnson, I'm sure, is going to be of some service helping Spencer communicate some things to the holdover linemen who were in that room. Which is never a bad thing. Familiarity across the board or at some point within the roster, I think is going to help everybody, especially given the fact that this is a very unique offseason. And Dalvin Tomlinson seemed to be encouraged by those connections across the board. So that was, I think, one of the interesting takeaways from what Dalvin Tomlinson had to say. Daniel Jones also spoke to the media, and this was really our first opportunity to hear what he had to say since really getting his hands into this offense. And And that was a key focus, which is no surprise. He said that he did study some Cowboys film to prepare himself for Jason Garrett's offense. And he was asked about, well, what is the main difference? Because remember, when Joe Judge spoke to the media, Joe Judge mentioned that it is going to be similar to the Cowboys offense because of Jason Garrett's background. And also you can tie it into the Nick Saban coaching tree because remember, Jason Garrett was the QB coach for the two years that Saban was the head coach Mm -hmm. of the Dolphins in 05 and 06. So Daniel Jones said to him, the main differences are going to be the following. The terminology 
which he's slowly adapting to. And then he mentioned the formations in terms of where they're lining up players and how they're moving personnel around. Those are the two things he mentioned probably is the biggest thing that he needs to start to get used to during the course of the offseason. He did say he did speak a little bit with Tony Romo, but they didn't get much into the offensive system. But he does hope to explore that further on down the road. And also was asked about having Cooper Rush on the team. Remember, the Giants just picked him up a few days ago off of waivers from Dallas, and his quote there was, he's been great to have, he understands the system, and has been able to answer a lot of our questions and helping speed up the learning process. Now, I think this is an interesting dynamic because Cooper Rush has only been in the league for three years. He's had minimal snaps. In fact, has never started an NFL game. Alex Tanney has never started an NFL game, which means that Colt McCoy is the only Giants backup quarterback right now with any significant NFL experience. He has started over two dozen games in his nine-year NFL career. So I wonder... Because of Rush's familiarity with Jason Garrett and what was done down in Dallas, does Rush have a chance to maybe become the number two quarterback behind Jones, or is Colt McCoy going to be the number two quarterback strictly based on his experience? That's that's going to be an interesting battle to watch once the Giants report back to the facility. And, and I will say this. There's also a possibility now that you're going to have 55 active guys uh, on your roster every week. Uh, at least, you know, they're going to add the two from we had they had 53 before. Maybe that entices you to keep three quarterbacks. Or maybe you wave Cooper Rush and put him on practice squad and keep him around if you decide that McCoy's going to be your number two. I'm, I'm going to watch that quarterback situation carefully. Well, I think all fair points. I would lean towards right now if you were asking me to read between the lines. Keeping three? I would think keeping three is far more substantive than perhaps Rush surpassing Colt McCoy for the number two spot. I think Cooper Rush... Having a presence right now on the roster is ideal because he's an extension of Jason Garrett and the offense. That's why he's so valuable because in an offseason, Paul, where these quarterbacks are not going to be able to take reps on the field, the fact that you have somebody that's been through the journey of learning this offense and knows it just as effectively as Jason Garrett because he was with the Cowboys as an undrafted player in 17 18 and 19. And to your point, we're talking about only three regular season passes. He came into two games in lopsided affairs in reserve of Dak Prescott. So limited on field experience, but an overwhelming amount of experience, Paul, in the classroom with Mm -hmm. Dak Prescott, with Jason Garrett, Kellen Moore, Scott Linehan, all of the guys that worked under Jason Garrett, Rush has been with. He's been exposed to. So if I'm Daniel Jones... Yeah, I think that's a great guy to then have a meeting with after you meet as a team and pick his brain. So I think that's where his true value is. As far as how the competition plays out, like anything else, we're not going to know until we see on-field work, specifically preseason games, if we're fortunate to have those games, depending on how the offseason plays out. But right now, with a 90-man roster, I would look to add more and more players that know the offense like the back of their hand so that they could be a value to main starters, whether it be offensive linemen, Paul, whether it be quarterbacks, whether it be running backs. You cannot have enough players that have been exposed to Jason Garrett's offense right now in-house so that they can be an extension of the coaching staff. I think when push comes to shove and they finally get down to making the final roster, and again, I agree with you, I think it's going to wind up being McCoy number two and Rush number three. But when the Giants finally have to make those decisions about who is going to make the 55, uh, it may come down to, and we've already talked about this too, Lance, you've got to worry about a lot of injuries when these guys report because you just don't know what kind of shape some of these guys are going to be in. And the last time that the NFL had to report to training camp late in 2011, we talked about this with Newsday's Bob Glauber the other day, and Joe Judge has brought it up, that season just was, was horrific in terms of the number of injuries. The quantity was off the charts. 
And when you start having guys dropping like flies at different positions, all of a sudden that third quarterback becomes a bit of a luxury and maybe you can't keep him. But I think in a perfect world they would like to. Well, and I also think, as you mentioned earlier, the expansion of the roster size gives you a little bit more flexibility and leeway to keep an additional quarterback. And also remember, I understand the dynamics are different this offseason versus last offseason, but Pat Shermer did keep three quarterbacks last year. So it's not unheard of if the Giants want to go in that direction. And there were some years where we had three quarterbacks with other head coaches too. So that would not be a curveball. That would not be a surprise. And in a year where you have very limited on-field work, that could be an extremely valuable asset. Whereas the numbers game is not something you're worried about. It's a matter of, hey, having an extra voice in the QB room for our young quarterback entering only his second year that is learning yet again a new offense. To me, there's value in holding on to a third quarterback because we talked about this well, also. Well, I agree with you. Let, let me make that clear. I agree with you. I just think it's something that's worth talking about. 100%. But I want to go back to last season because I think there's an interesting connection to be made here. When Eli Manning, Alex Tanney, and Daniel Jones were kept on the roster, you know, we've all fielded questions, Paul. What is the point of keeping an extra quarterback if we know that, God forbid, something happens to Eli Manning, Daniel Jones is going to go in anyway? But one of the things that I think proved to be valuable, and we always were asked questions about what is the purpose of Alex Tanney on the roster and so forth, there would be times where Eli Manning, during the course of a week, Paul, and this is when he started, he has responsibilities where he needs to prepare to be the starter. And Daniel Jones, still very young in his development, may want to pick the brain of somebody else outside of the coaches. So this is where a guy like Alex Tanney has value because he's a veteran. He's been in a lot of different offenses. Daniel Jones can ask him as many questions as he wants and allow Eli Manning to have his space. Well, I think it's very similar in terms of now what you could have with having that third option for Daniel Jones to now do the opposite where he's the starter, but maybe he wants to lean on another veteran who has been exposed to different scenarios or who knows this offense very well. Well, I think that's why maybe the the real competition here and where somebody is going to lose is rush against Tanny as the third stringer. And I think both of us would probably think because of the Dallas connection, Rush is going to have a leg up on that one. Especially, once again, in an offseason where you don't have much on-field work. Now, speaking of Eli Manning, he was also brought up because... Daniel Jones was asked, well, how different is it now that Eli's not there? And Daniel Jones spoke very highly of Eli Manning. He said that it's different. He also said to a certain degree, and this is just my interpretation of what he said, I think Daniel Jones misses Eli Manning a little bit because he spoke of the value that Eli Mm -hmm. had, especially when Eli lost his starting job, just somebody else, once again, to lean on, ask questions, guide him along. But he also admitted, Paul, that it was a bit awkward when he did take over as the starter in week three and Eli was the established quarterback, has been a staple of the Giants organization, they eventually got used to their new roles. But for the first time, he did admit that first week or two, it was kind of unusual taking on that starting job with Eli Manning still present. Anytime that you succeed a legend, there is going to be a spotlight on you And let's face it, Lance, you were around, just as I was every day, and you saw how many questions were peppered toward Daniel Jones from the second he got drafted until the season was over. In fact, it's still happening now. But, of course, while Eli was there and while Eli was the starter, the questions were even more probing because everybody wanted to know, when is the potential change going to occur? I mean, you know, curiosity kills the cat, right? Well, in this case, curiosity enhances the spotlight and makes people feel a little bit more uncomfortable. So I think it was only natural for him to feel that way. And in all honesty, I don't think it's a big deal at all. No, not and at all. I, I, I applaud Daniel Jones for being honest about it and saying, yes, it was a little bit awkward. But he also reserved a bunch of praise throwing it Eli Manning's way, saying he enjoyed working with him. He learned a lot from him. 
And, uh, you know, he'll use anything that he gained from Eli to his advantage. And deservedly so in terms of the praise, because as you just alluded to, Paul, anybody who followed the team closely last season, although there may have been some awkwardness at the initial stage, I don't think anybody could have asked for it to be as smooth of a transition as it ultimately was. Eli was the true professional. He helped guide Daniel Jones along and... In an ideal way, he was able to assume his starting job and have a proper send-off, and Daniel Jones got valuable experience to prepare him further here in year two. So, you know, when you talk about those awkward transitions, especially ones that come in a season, I don't think you could have asked for a smoother transition. Well, let's say this. Those two guys got along as well as peanut butter and jelly. They really did. There was nothing awkward between Jones and Manning. The only awkwardness was the attention and the pressure that was being created from the outside. Yeah, 100%. I think, though, on a side note here, one of the biggest upsets in Big Blue Kickoff Live history was just heard. The fact that you chose to not use Italian food as your comparison there and went American style with peanut butter and jelly. Okay. I am blown away. I can't believe we didn't get spaghettis and meatballs or pasta and tomato sauce. Wow. <laughs> I, I need a, a minute to recover here, Paul. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to revise. I'm going to revise. <laughs> Italian bread and oil, okay? Okay, there we go. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I know the world right now is not how it used to be, but my goodness, I didn't think that was going to tilt things over. I'm thrown off my game, Lance. Wow. Thrown off Ooh. my game. My goodness. Okay, let's try to get back on track here. As far as some other takeaways from Daniel Jones, he had said that he is back home in Charlotte, North Carolina. So he's back at his parents' house with his siblings. <laughs> They're all quarantining together. And He's working out with a few players who he's known from his high school days who all went on to perform at the collegiate level. So they're having some local workouts. They're, of course, practicing social distancing. And he's also working out, Paul, he mentioned with a QB coach. And they're, of course, focusing on ball security. They're Mm -hmm. running through drills where they are emphasizing the importance of when you get hit, holding on to the football, running through all those scenarios. Because he was asked, hey, from year one to year two, where is the one area you want to improve upon? Where do you want to work on? And he did not hesitate. First thing, clearly, was that ball security department. No question. He understands that. The turnovers must come down if he is going to take the next step as an NFL quarterback. Now, he did not mention names, but he also said that right before everybody started to shut down, he did have some of his teammates down at Duke to do some uh, a passing camp, yeah. if you will. Now, it was reported at the time that Sterling Shepard and Darius Slayton were among the guys he had down there. He did not confirm those names today. But just so people are aware, Jones has been able to throw to his teammates at least earlier during this offseason. Which is something that Eli Manning would do every single offseason as well. So it's no different. And you know what I look at that as? I look at that as the similar comparison to teams that got their pro days in, Paul, before the pandemic Mm -hmm. canceled everything else. It was similar to that. So the Giants wide receivers at Daniel Jones got some work in before clearly the circumstances changed. So Daniel Jones looks at that as somewhat beneficial to at least have some work in versus having no work in. A small consolation prize, I guess, is how you can look at it. And, and of course, the NFL has now extended its virtual offseason through May 29th. Originally, I believe the date was going to be May 18th. Joe Judge had said he was waiting uh, the other day when he was talking to the media, waiting for official word from the NFL what he would be doing after May 18th because the league had not announced how they were going to deal with the rest of the month. And now they've extended it through the 29th. And so these guys now know they're going to be doing a lot more computer visual learning and video calls and and all that kind of fun stuff. Uh, Playing Hollywood Squares on your home screen, basically, is what (laughs) it's all about. A very fair parallel. I think, though, it's probably starting to sink in for the players and the coaches. And this is just my pure opinion. This is not necessarily the NFL speaking on the subject of the virtual offseason and how much longer it will go. But if you just take the calendar into consideration, Paul, normally when it comes to early June, we have the mandatory minicamp for three days. Mm -hmm. And then by the time mid-June rolls around, they're breaking for their month 
plus off. So they get about six weeks off usually until the exactly. summer camp starts. So I guess my point is, even though the NFL extended it through the end of May, let's be honest. When you look at the calendar right now, I would say it's safe to say there's not going to be any on-field work until the earliest, in my estimation, when training camp would kick off based on the calendar. I would not even want to venture a guess. Too much fluid right now going on. No, very fluid, but I think if you put the dots together and you look at the way this offseason is playing out, I think most teams are at least planning that the virtual feel will continue at least through the remainder of May into the first half of June. But time will tell, and as you said, things are certainly bound to change. Saquon Barkley was the last of the three players to speak to the media. He said he's got his own gym in his basement, so Mm -hmm. that has been beneficial. He's been able to work out. He's also doing some running around the neighborhood, trying to find some local fields to get in, some agility workouts as well. He said Joe Judge, one of his first impressions of him, very detailed-oriented in terms of how he runs things. But Saquon says it's business as usual because, you know, one of the things he was pressed upon was as a leader, how is he making his impression to some of the new faces? And he said, listen, it's no different, but you got to pick your spots because you don't have the guys front and center in the locker room. So you have to find a way to show leadership through the meetings, which brings, of course, its own challenges, Paul, but that doesn't mean that a lot of these established vets are shying away from those opportunities. Well, it was just yesterday when Joe Judge had told us that the veterans and the rookies finally got an opportunity to Zoom together in the same video calls. See, that had not happened prior, so this is part of the next step of bonding electronically. And as Barkley said, one of the things that you can do during the video calls is act as natural as possible. Have your teammates do the same. Joke with each other. Try to be very casual with each other so that you guys are forming some type of relationship. Look, it's tough to do it through a screen. But the bottom line is the Giants don't have a choice, nor does any other NFL team. If you're going to get to know anything about the guy you're going to be playing with, You better get on those video calls and chat them up because there's nothing else you can do. Yeah, you're limited based on the circumstances. So all of the players, I think, are echoing the same sentiments. They're making the best of their current circumstances. Now, as far as the running back position, he mentioned that similar to Daniel Jones, he's looked at some Cowboys film, specifically Zeke, because Zeke has been a very successful running back in that system over the last few years as both a receiver and as a running back. But... He also is somewhat motivated based on the success that Zeke has had in the system that Saquon feels, you know, he has certainly not hit his ceiling yet, that there's plenty of more work that he can do so that he can flourish as much, if not more, than what Zeke was able to get out of it. Yes, he did indicate that he does expect to contact him and learn more about what that Cowboys offensive playbook was all about. But uh, he said, you know, it's great because I watch him on tape and I see him making these terrific runs and I can't wait to run some of those plays. (laughs) So, you know, think about this. Barkley has more explosion and big play long range ability than Elliott has. So if Barkley can get that kind of blocking and we know that the Giants offensive line is under reconstruction and the Dallas offensive line for Elliott has been near the top of the league for several years. But if Barkley can get that kind of production from his O-line, you would think he's going to have even more 20-plus yard runs this season. There's no doubt about it. The potential is there. It's a matter of the execution following. But I also think that if you look at how Zeke has been utilized by the Cowboys, the potential there for also continuing to be a weapon as a receiver out of the Mm -hmm. backfield should not be overlooked in addition to trying to create those holes for those big runs, as you just mentioned. Yes, I would agree with that. The only thing Barkley said that he's really got to get used to because he did see some similarities. There's, There's obviously a lot of terminology that's going to be different, and, and he understands that. But he said he, could, he believes in these coaches, he believes in his teammates, and he believes in the approach that Judge is taking with the players. And when you have somebody who is all in like that, who has a tremendous amount of confidence in not only the people around him but the process that they're using, that makes you feel much better about what they're going to be buying into and their ability to execute it with some confidence. 
Well, because everybody's making first impressions across the board. The players are getting used to the coaches. The coaches are getting used to the players. So it's no surprise that I think a lot of people are encouraged with what they're seeing based on the interaction across the board in this virtual means. Now, the other running back that was brought up in the conversation throughout the conference call with Barkley was Christian McCaffrey, the Panthers running back who just received a lucrative contract extension because after McCaffrey signed his deal, a lot of people started saying, oh, well, Barkley is due up next. And Saquon was honest. He said he was very happy for Christian McCaffrey and is not going to shy away from certainly being excited about what it can mean for him down the road. But at the end of the day, like anything else, Saquon says his priority is being a productive player on the field for the Giants this season. I, I like the phrase that he used. He said, quote, taking care of the little things first, end quote, meaning mm-hmm. not getting caught up in the big picture and the money, just going out there, working hard, showing the results on the field for the Giants, and then essentially the rest will take care of itself. One of the other comments he made in answer to um, the McCaffrey question was, I always feel like I have something to prove. And then he said, not only for myself, but for my team. Barkley is a team-first guy. We know that. We have been around him daily for almost two years. And there is little question about where his heart lies, where his motivation lies, and everything will happen in due time. And, you know, after playing two years in the National Football League with two more years left on a contract and then a fifth-year option, which in all likelihood will be picked up, this is not the time to be talking about financial considerations. And besides, Saquon Barkley also knows there have been many financial considerations outside of that Giants contract that he has already been able to procure because he is wearing the big blue helmet. That's the beauty of being in the New York market. I think most players who are stars in this market understand that that comes with the territory, and that's a good thing, not necessarily Mm -hmm. a bad thing. So those are some of the main takeaways from the three conference calls on Wednesday for Dalvin Tomlinson, Daniel Jones, and Saquon Barkley. It was certainly good to hear from the players, get their perspective on what it's been like interacting with one another as well as the coaches from a remote standpoint. Anything, Paul, that we did not mention jump out to you that you want to throw out there, or do you feel we hit on all the main takeaways? Well, I would only say one more thing. Saquon Barkley was asked about uh, Coach Burns, who comes up from Alabama, as you know, longtime assistant coach with Nick Saban, running backs coach, who had been with some of the best in the business at the NCAA level. And Barkley said he's got a great history with those running backs at Alabama, great attention to detail and focused on the little things. And he had said that a number of Alabama players reached out to him about Coach Burns and said, you are going to love this guy. And that's really good, too, because that shows you that Barkley is is not going to allow any ego to be part of that room. He is very willing and understanding that Coach Burns has been around football for a long, long time. And he's coming here to help. And he's coming here to teach this third-year running back. And this third-year running back is willing to listen. And he's excited about the prospects of getting better. And he's not going to, you know, stand on his laurels and give this guy the cold shoulder. He's welcoming him. And I think that also says a lot about what Barkley's about. 100%. One of the running backs that reached out to him, Barkley mentioned, was Mark Ingram of the Baltimore Ravens, who's a product of Alabama. Derrick Henry is another guy that came out of Alabama. Vernon Burns has an unbelievable track record he really in terms does. of all the guys that have come out of that program. And we spoke to a lot of his former colleagues at Alabama, and every coach brought up the fact that he is a guy that is a stickler for the fundamentals. And that's what you like to hear because if there's any person that could take Saquon Barkley to the next level, knowing that it's the minute details that is going to take Saquon Barkley to the next level, you want a guy that focuses heavily on the fundamentals. So I think that's a very interesting match to see how that progresses during the course of this season. And you know what, Lance? Think about this too. The running game is such a an osmosis kind of thing between an offensive line and its running backs. And you've got Colombo coaching the offensive line, who is a stickler for detail. You've got Burns, who's coaching the running backs, who is a stickler for detail. If this offensive line and these running backs are going to be in symmetry with their details, watch out. The Giants are going to grind out a lot of yardage. Yeah, well, that's why Saquon Barkley said you got to take care of the little things first. That's a prime example of taking care 
of the little things. So that is going to wrap up Thursday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Appreciate everybody for tuning in. Thanks again to Aaron Taylor, former NFL offensive lineman, CBS Sports College football analyst, for joining us and breaking down the offensive linemen who were drafted by the Giants, as well as the award that he helped found, which is the Joe Moore Award. You can go to joemoreaward.com for more details on how they evaluate the best offensive lines in all of college football. Paul, enjoyed the conversation as always. Look forward to doing it again next week. A very fun and informative show, Lance. We'll talk to you again soon. Indeed. So that is going to wrap up the program. We'll have a new edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live coming your way on Friday. For Paul Dettino, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Thursday. Always stay locked to Giants.com for the latest. Have a good one.